Gracious God, we say thank you uh, for just gathering us today. I uh, pray that your Holy Spirit is uh, made manifest as we continue to worship you uh, through the word. Uh, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our text today uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and it reads as follows. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not be, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The title that I want to give uh, for uh, the sermon today is the more you know. The more you know. In 1989, NBC launched a campaign. The campaign was known as the more you know. Anybody remember it? The star and the big rainbow arrow that followed it. And for over 30 years, NBC used celebrities and athletes, politicians and the like to empower youth to gain knowledge. The public service ads were sometimes centered on drug awareness, uh, health, education. Uh, It covered a myriad of topics. And one could assume that the foundation of this uh, The More You Know campaign was a quote that was attributed to Sir Francis Bacon, which stated, knowledge itself is power. The thought being that once someone had the knowledge, they could accomplish anything. They could overcome anything, that they could fight anything. And it's a great thought. And to some degree, it's true. However, it often falls short. If you think about it, no matter how much knowledge we have, we are still drawn to things that harm us. We still make bad decisions. So I know that sugar is bad, especially too much of it. But does that stop me from drinking Red Bull in the morning for breakfast? No. Does it stop me from having having cake and ice cream for breakfast? No. Don't judge. It's Christmas. Uh, (laughs) so, so, So I have the knowledge But oftentimes the knowledge doesn't translate into action. 
And if we think about all of the celebrities they used in the More You Know campaigns to tell us to say no to drugs and things like that, you would think that it would have helped the drug problem in our country, but it, but it hasn't. And I think that if we take a step back and, 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 and are, are, are logical, we'll see that having knowledge isn't always the answer. Because ultimately there is a difference between information about something and an intimate understanding of something. Information-based knowledge is all about amassing and accumulating data, whereas intimate understanding comes from relationship. Knowledge in and of itself is not enough. And I'll give you a personal example, and I'll use my love language uh, as that personal example. My primary love language is gift-giving. And you can do a lot with that information, like, oh, Pastor X loves gift-giving. That's a way to show, um, ex, you know, love for him. You know, I tell my wife that all the time. <laughs> but the thing is, with our relationship, that gift-giving can fall flat. Here's an example. You can gift me a great skydiving excursion. It's an amazing gift. The problem is if you don't know me, you won't know that I'm definitely afraid of heights. So you can give me the skydiving excursion gift, but guess what? I ain't going. (laughs) And so without the intimate knowledge that comes from relationship, the the, the knowledge of, of knowing what my gift, what my love language is, falls flat. The problem is that information is insufficient because if we had an intimate relationship, we would probably know how to best communicate the things that we want to communicate. Without intimate relationship, knowledge is useless and probably in many ways dangerous. In Hebrew culture, this was understood. So in scripture, when you see uh, the, the terms knowledge of the Lord, It wasn't talking about just understanding things about the Lord, understanding things about God. When it talked about knowledge of the Lord, it was referring to an understanding of God that came from deep, intimate relationship with God, our creator. And brothers and sisters, what God wants more than anything is intimate relationship with his creation. But unfortunately, like many of us, the Hebrews settle for information, but not relationship. And part of the problem is because oftentimes we want the outcome of the relationship without the intimacy of the relationship. It's kind of how, like, I want to lose weight, but I don't want to work out. How I want to have a lot of money in my savings account, but I can't stop spending. I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about other people. Right. We 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 want the outcome of things without putting in the work. And oftentimes uh, the Hebrews wanted to be the chosen people and live into their identity as chosen people, but did not want to follow the statutes and directives of God. Because when our relationships move from information to intimacy, it changes everything we do. When, when, 
when, when, when we move past information and start thinking about depth of relationship, it reshapes how we approach things. And so the main focus of this text today, I believe, is to show us what a world would look like who are full of people who are shaped by an intimate relationship with God. In chapter 2, Isaiah points us to hope. Hope was something uh, that was needed because the children of Israel who had been dispersed from the land, uh, the monarchy had been destroyed after having a succession of kings who did not honor God. And they found themselves captive in a foreign land and they needed something to hold on to. And so last week we talked about the hope that the prophet Isaiah gave them in the coming Messiah. But today, as we look at the text, we start to see the results of that Messiah's coming. Isaiah the prophet gave the people a word of hope. And now in chapter 11, he is pointing them to how the Messiah that they are hoping for will bring peace. But he starts off reminding us of a few things. The first thing that he tells us in verses 1 through 3 is that the coming Messiah will succeed where other Davidic kings failed. It says this, it says, there shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse and the branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It was this reminder that 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 God had established his 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 reign with the line of David through Jesse. But after Solomon, things got a little bit tricky. And there was king after king after king who, who, who valued keeping their power more than honoring God. And so in a very literal sense, the monarchy in a lot of ways had been cut down by the different peoples who had come in and held the folks captive. And so, so this monarchy, this this established rule and reign that God had put in place was no longer in charge. But the good thing about God is that he didn't change his promise to the people. He didn't he didn't change his mind. He could have maybe found another family to establish his promise with. But he kept his promise and what the scripture is telling us that even though all of these other kings failed, there will come another king, there will come another Messiah that succeeded where these other folks had fallen short. And it said that, that, that one of the ways that you will be able to identify this coming ruler is that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And if I'm a New Testament reader, I will understand that this kind of harkens physically back to John and Jesus' baptism in verse 21, which says, when all of the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying. Heavens was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him and in the bodily form of a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son who I love. With you I am well pleased. It was a very physical example that people would know like, oh, this is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. 
said the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The thing that the coming Messiah had going for him that the other kings didn't have was that this king's wisdom and knowledge started with the fear of God. And it wasn't a fear that meant, oh, I'm afraid. It wasn't a fear of consequences. It wasn't a fear of, of outcome. It was a fear that was, that was rooted in respect and honor and glorifying the creator. And when you respect and you honor and you glorify something, it changes how you interact. And so it said the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that this this ruler would be be wise and, and understanding, that this ruler would be mighty, this ruler would have knowledge, but this ruler would have a fear of the Lord that shaped how he did everything. Brothers and sisters, I wonder what our lives would look like if we really feared the Lord. And I'm not talking about a fear that says like, oh, if I sin, I'm going to hell, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not like, like pounding the pulpit. Like it's not a fire and brimstone thing. Like it's a, like if I, if I, if I really honored God in my life and I recognize God for who he is to me, if I recognize God as my creator and let that knowledge of him shape how I live, what things will be different in my life? If, if, if God was at the forefront of everything I did, how would that change what I do? Not God being an afterthought, not God being something that I did on Sunday mornings when I came to church and I go home and I don't think about God for the rest of the week. But no, if God is at the forefront of every decision that I make, if God is at the forefront of my relationships, if God's at the forefront of how I do my job, if God's at the forefront of how I spend my money, if the fear and the knowledge of God shapes me, how will my life be different? The text goes on to say, he shall not judge, this is verse 3, he says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now, other versions, instead of equity, it uses the word justice. So we we know that the coming Messiah will be fueled by the knowledge and the fear of God. But we also learn here through verses three and four that he will be motivated by righteousness and justice. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We have allowed our culture to reshape how we respond to the words righteousness and justice. Because most of the times when we hear those words, 
it's almost automatically connected to politics, if we're being honest, especially the word justice. And so to some degree, the word justice in the church has become this bad thing, right? Oh, we shouldn't be talking about politics in the church. But the reality of the fact is that oftentimes the culture, the world has taken the biblical mandate that we have as people of God and co-opted it to draw us in. If you think about it, and I wasn't planning on going here today, I'm sorry. (laughs) If you think about it, like most politicians understand that in order to get elected, right, they need the support of the church, okay? They need the support of Christians. And so what they have effectively done is taken, picked and chosen things from Scripture, and now those things are affiliated with different political, political parties, right? So most folks, when you hear about, like, righteousness and right living and doing things the right way, right, we, we kind of, like, associate that with, like, the Republican Party, right? It's, more, it's all about, like, good Christian values. And then when you hear stuff about, like, justice and equality and things like that, we associate that with the Democratic Party, right? Social justice warriors, X, Y, like, we kind of use that language, And then it puts everybody in different camps. But the reality is that what Scripture is telling us is that we need to live into both. That we need to be like Jesus, shaped by righteousness and justice. And it's not political, it's biblical. So we are called to be people who live righteous lives, who live in a way that sets an example for the world around us. But part of how we live righteously and set an example is being people who are about justice and equality and equity. And not justice like an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but us living in a way that brings glory to God for all people so that all folks can have the same quality of life and Christian experience. And so part of what we we have to do is reclaim our biblical mandate because it's neither Republican or Democrat, left or right, progressive or liberal. It's really all about us living into what God called us to. And when we allow ourselves to be shaped by the scripture and directed by scripture and follow what the scripture says, then we can't go wrong. And it doesn't make Body's political affiliation, right or wrong, right? You find yourself where you find yourself. What this really says is that, like, each side is incomplete. Like, nobody gets it completely right. That makes y'all following me? Because I don't want to get no emails tomorrow. <laughs> so, so ultimately, we are being challenged to live counterculturally. So it's not about an elephant or a donkey, it's about a lamb. (laughs) So it says this Messiah will be motivated by righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice, which should also be our motivation. 
And so as the as the as the children of Israel are hearing this prophecy, I can only imagine how excited they're getting because there's hopefulness in this coming Messiah. But there's also this realization that this Messiah was coming to set things right. And and, and, and the great part about it was the reality was that we messed it up. We we were disobedient. We turned away. We looked to other gods. And I think Kayla mentioned it today in her in her devotion. It was this reminder that oftentimes we sought refuge and peace. And things that didn't make sense. And so God was coming to reclaim and to, to, to rectify. And he was sending his Messiah to make right the things that we made wrong because we were being disobedient. So today we lit the candle of peace. And the, the interesting thing about it, like Kayla said, is that oftentimes we try to find peace in places where God isn't there. And, I, and, and, and as a person who... Who, who served in the military, in the reserves. Peace was something that I wanted, right? And it, and it was funny, ultimately, because we often use tools to establish peace that only cause more chaos. I remember learning in history that World War I was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. Anybody remember that? Like that was supposed to be the war. But how how many wars have we had since then? So when you read verses six through nine, this is what it says. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them, the cow shall shall the and the bear shall gaze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lions shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cobra's den. They shall now hurt or destroy in all the holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What this was reminding us of was that the Messiah's tools would not be tools of war. That the Messiah wouldn't have to establish his reign with weapons and fighting and violence. The same way that the other kings and the other uh, leaders had tried to establish and maintain. But the power that the Messiah would have would come from his word and his word coming from the spirit of God that was within him. And so the very presence of the Messiah was calling us into a place of peace where things just didn't make sense. A place where a lion lays down with the lamb. To me, that sounds like breakfast. And so this Messiah was coming to establish peace. And it talks about the way that the world will look and how our relationships and our interactions will be counterintuitive. And and theologians go back and forth about whether or not this was literal or whether this was a metaphorical uh, uh, depiction 
of what it will look like when us as humans turned away from our instincts, our instincts that tell us to conquer, our instincts that tell us to fight, our instincts that tell us to get ours at the expense of everybody else. And I think either way it paints this beautiful picture of what life, what the world looks like when it is shaped by the knowledge of God. Because the last verse says, that shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So we get this picture of the peace that comes when our world, when our earth is full of the knowledge of God. And it's not this, this, this surface level peace. It's not the type of peace that you experience when the kids start sleeping at night and you get that hour before you go to bed to just not be bothered, right? It's not, it's not that peace that you get, even though you love your spouse, but when they go on vacation for a week and you kind of just get the house to yourself. Right. It's not the peace that you feel when it's vacation time and you're driving to work on your commute and there's not a lot of cars out, so you just get to go, right? It's, a, it's like it's not that type of peace. It's, 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 a, it's a peace that's defined by harmony. It's a, the peace that's defined by wholeness and completeness. Welfare and tranquility. It's a peace that's defined by the world looking the way that God intended it to look. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's the goal. And the opportunity that we have as the church today is that through scripture and through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we get a glimpse of what that looks like. The challenge is that most of us today have gotten so used to the chaos. We've gotten so used to things being out of harmony. That it's easiest, easier for us to wait. It's, it's, it's easier easier for us to just sit and anticipate the Lord's coming when the church is really called to be active participants in the peace. We are called, we are challenged to, to use our intimate knowledge of God to develop intimate relationship with God and then be his vessels in the world today so that people who have not yet come to know who Jesus is can begin to experience the peace that we feel because we know that ultimately in the end, God has control of all things. Because the pain that the world is suffering right now was not the pain that the Lord intended. The death, the sickness, this was not God's plan for the world. So what does it mean for us as a church to be the church and to use our relationship with God to shape how we interact with the world around us so that others may know? Because there's something beautiful about being able to come to this place and sing and worship, to look at the candles and the trees. But what happens when I start thinking about the brothers and sisters who are driving their cars right up and down Hobson Road right now who don't know the peace of Christ? 
what what is what does it mean when I go to go to Jules and and I and and I and I don't know if the person who's in line in front of me has yet to receive the gospel message. I think this passage has a twofold purpose. It, 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 was, it, was, it was pointing to hope and peace for the children in Israel, but I think it also points to challenge for us. We've benefited from the life, from the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ. And now we're called in this season of waiting to help be the bearers of weight for those who are buckling under the pressure. Amen? Amen. It's tough. I don't say any of this as if it's easy or without sacrifice. I don't challenge us to any of this stuff as if it doesn't come at a cost to us. Because sometimes being people of God and, 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 and actively pursuing the mission of God comes at the cost of personal relationships. It comes at the cost of comfort. Sometimes it, it, it has cost folks jobs. But it'll never cost us a cross. And if Jesus... If God was willing to send his son and wrap him in human flesh and ultimately send him to the cross so that we all can experience peace through the knowledge of God, what are we willing to sacrifice so that our brothers and sisters who have yet to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ can have that same opportunity? So as we wait, as we look to the coming Messiah, remember that in as much as we experience peace, we are to be agents of peace as well. Amen.